Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing, plus all of our other podcasts, over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And I said this last week, too, but I mean it. If you have never been to Crested Butte before in the fall, you should come spend some time in our wide open spaces and do some running or hiking or biking, but not vulcaneering, on our amazing and vast network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Okay, today, Brendan Leonard and I are talking to the incredibly interesting and impressive runner-slash-scientist, Dr. Caitlin Gerben. And fun fact, Caitlin even used to be a snowboarder till she totally cheated on the sport and ran off with skiing. Or something like that. I don't know, you should listen to her version of the story, which we do talk about. This is a fairly tricky episode to neatly sum up, but Brendan and I had a hell of a good time peppering Caitlin with questions, and Caitlin had so much fun that she might even come back on the show. I mean, it's probably not, but maybe, and we really have our fingers crossed because this is a really fun conversation. So anyway, if you like fun conversations with bioengineers who are also all-around badasses, then this will be right up your alley. So, for example, we talk about Caitlin's work on stem cells, and then this really hard thing she did called the Rainier Infinity Loop, and she is a three-time top 10 finisher at Western States 100. We probably should have talked more about that, but maybe we will get to that next time. Anyway, it is my very real pleasure to now get out of the way and let you enjoy my conversation with Brendan Leonard and the wonderful Caitlin Gerben. Here we go. Caitlin Gerben, thank you for being on our little podcast called Off the Couch. I think you have had a really busy, gosh, last couple of years as an ultra runner, what I have been thinking about asking you is how does it go when you explain your PhD dissertation to someone you've just met at a party or on an airplane? Do they understand it? Uh, you know, I would say I generally avoid trying to get it into that topic of discussion in general with strangers. And I'm, I'm not really much of a party goer, especially nowadays. So there's not a lot of party talk, but yeah, I mean, I, I think like that's something that you're always trying to craft like an easy way to explain something. So depending on who it is and what they're interested in, I try to come up with some, some version of an explanation that makes some tangible sense. Yeah. What was your, what was the actual title of the dissertation? I should probably know that, right? <laughs> well, I, I mean, like ballpark. If you if you lie to us right now, no one will know. It's not like we're going to look um, it up. I it, for my dissertation, I focused on cell based therapies using tissue engineering to uh, solve cardiac diseases. Okay. So, in particular, like heart attacks. Basically, you get a lot of dead tissue when someone has a heart attack, and because there's no way for the body to really restore that tissue and actually make it work again. That's why a lot of people end up having heart failure and needing to get a heart transplant. So I was trying to find alternative treatments for that. Just a hypothetical question. Let's say we were at a party and we were like three drinks in. How different would your answer be to the one you just gave us about your dissertation? You know, I think I can hold it together pretty well with some tricks. So the same? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And also most of my most of my party experiences have been uh, throughout college and grad school. So I'm with a bunch of other scientists. So the nerd talk just comes out, you know, like there's I have some like pretty fond memories of being at bars and doing science on napkins where like, you know, you're getting all these ideas and just start sketching out these nonsense plots on a, on a bar napkin that then gets, you know, covered with beer and shoved in your pocket and you pull it out later and you're like, I know this is a brilliant idea, but I don't remember what it was. <laughs> this sounds very similar to being a writer. Yeah. Yeah, so 
did that go direct did that sort of lead directly into your current job as a bioengineer yeah yeah it actually did and i felt super lucky that i was able to find a job in seattle that kind of connected what i did in grad school um i mean there's a lot of kind of biotech growth in a lot of the cities but seattle has been kind of expanding and there's definitely a lot more opportunities now in the field than there were even like five years ago when I was kind of looking in it. So I think that's promising. But yeah, it was actually a connection and I met a few people at some different seminars and things that then led to the position that I have now. So that's that's been pretty awesome. Okay. I was looking for people have obviously asked you to describe your day job in layperson's terms often and the best descriptor the my favorite description that i read that you said was you're developing a google earth for a cell essentially which which is pretty great yeah yeah i like i like that analogy a lot cuz i think a lot of people even if you don't know anything about cell biology you know you're familiar with thinking about a google earth or at least google maps and having you plug in some destination and you know your starting point and you're trying to figure out how do i get from point a to b and you could look at a static map but then you could also add in like, oh, but I know there's generally a lot of traffic on this bridge. And so if I know that, how should I reroute my plan? Or I want to know what the weather's going to be or something. There's all these different layers of information you can add on there. And yeah, that's essentially how we're trying to think about cell biology. Okay. So if you're sitting next to someone on a plane, is it easier for you to describe your current work or what the Rainier infinity loop is uh, to someone who's not a mountaineer, I guess. Probably the science. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> even, I mean, I, well, I don't know. We probably get a glossy eyed response either way. I think yeah, even like right. <laughs> when you try to explain something like the Rainier infinity loop, like if you've never run more than a 5k before, or you've never climbed up a mountain like Rainier, then there's just zero context for what that really means. It's just like this kind of enormous thing that's like, whoa, okay, that sounds like a lot. And I think I've often gotten that kind of response when I, even if you just say the word, yeah, I'm a bioengineer, people are like, oh, okay, that's, that's beyond what I want to talk about. And then the conversation <laughs> often just like drops off there. Yeah. How about them Seahawks? Yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah, I feel like if we give you the aid of being able to use like an airline cocktail napkin, it'd be much easier to describe the Rainier Infinity yes, Loop. Exactly. Okay. There you go. So I'll sort of summarize it. It's basically you're climbing Rainier twice, going over the top, going down the other side, running the Wonderland Trail to your starting point, going up again, going down the, the other side the same way you did, and then running the other section of the Wonderland Trail, which encircles the entire mountain and ending back at your starting point. Yeah, that's basically the gist of it. You did it without a napkin. I'm impressed. <laughs> so, I mean, there can't be more than, what do you think, 20 people have done it? Maybe total ever or less than that? Uh, I think less than that. I want to say that when my partner Alex and I did it last year, I feel like we were in the, you know, maybe like nine and 10th people or eight and ninth people to ever do it. Um, since then, there's been a new men's FKT last summer and then... I also know of two kind of badass low-key women that went out and did it this summer um, as a, essentially as a backpacking route, weren't even going for a fast time. So I'm sure there are some people um, kind of who have done it in that sort of style that don't get all the press and so maybe don't make it on the you know FKT boards or something. But yeah, definitely less than 20 people that I'm aware of. So if we drill down from the people who, the normal public to the, just the people who understand what it is, there's a very select group of people who know how badass it is that you even completed it, let alone that you did it fast. And like, so it's pretty hard to impress people, I guess, is what I'm saying. Like, like, yeah, whatever. You ever, that sounds cool. You ever climbed Everest? Yeah. <laughs> like, anyway, so that was the last <laughs> summer. <laughs> I, you know, I came to like, find out about you through your ultra running success in races and, you know, in FKTs and sort of doing back research, I find out that you're like really pro have done a lot of mountaineering or more accurately, vulcaneering. Is that, is that more accurate? Yeah. Th there's a lot of terms for it. Uh, vulcaneering, ultraneering. Yeah. A friend, a friend and I joked about starting Vulcanist magazine several years ago and 
of course it didn't go anywhere because nobody, I mean, you could, you could maybe do an issue a year for like five years, but, and it would be a specifically like Pacific Northwest publication. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's a fun joke to throw around, but. Oh, I just, it's, I mean, being in the, in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, volcanoes are the thing. So trying to have a, a volcano season, I mean, you can't really have that anywhere else in the country, um, probably pretty few places in the world. So that's always a fun motivator to get out when the weather is generally a little crummy in the city, but it, you know, gets sunnier in other parts of the state in the spring. I guess you, you know, became sponsored as an ultra runner. Do you feel like it's hard to choose what to do because you have all these, you have a bunch of different interests, especially when, you know, like this summer, probably not as much because of COVID canceling all the races and everything. But do you have a hard time going, okay, what am I going to do this summer and, or this year and, and having those competing interests? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I think I, like you said, like this year is pretty different. And I think that's something that really allowed me to kind of explore things I was passionate about and just get out and do fun stuff. But Every other year prior to this, I mean, I've done Western States the last three years in a row with the exception of this year. And I mean, most people familiar with the ultra running community and races and stuff will know that Western States is, you know, a super historic, um, really important ultra in, in the U.S. And it's super competitive, but it's not very technical and it actually has a net downhill descent there's still quite a bit of mountain running in it and especially in the early sections when you're up kind of it near lake tahoe but you know overall it's a runner's race and you have to be fit and fast on runnable terrain and that kind of directly conflicts with a lot of the terrain that i train on out in the northwest and what i actually really love um, getting out and doing, especially in, in the spring season here as the Alpine kind of starts melting out. And so that's always been a challenge of figuring out, like, I won't necessarily say bare minimum, but what is like the minimum amount of running, running that I can do in my training and what can I get away with, with swapping a long run and going and climbing some volcano or going and skiing some objective. And it's hard, I think, to figure that out. But I think last year I did a reasonable job of that where I still was got good training in for Western States, um, you know, doing a lot more running, but then still got out and climbed a few peaks and did a few skiing missions on the weekends. Um, but it just involves being a little bit creative. And ultimately I think just convincing yourself that there's a lot of ways to build strength and fitness and, um, running fast is one way to do that. But I don't think that that's the whole picture, especially if, if you're having fun and you can keep it fresh. I mean, I think like that's one one way to, to really do well in a race is show up excited and not burned out from your training. So getting out for some of this other stuff, I think has been important for me to keep that energy up. How much does it compete two parts of your personality, maybe being competitive with others or competitive in a race format versus wanting to do things like FKTs? Does that, does that question make sense? I like to pick a few key races or events. In this case, it was FKT with Wonderland Trail. Pick a few things where I'm really going to, you know, put a lot of my energy and effort towards. And when I show up to those races, I want, like, I, I know I'm, I'm competitive, but I also just like having fun. And so I think, like, my balance there is knowing that I can show up at the starting line, feeling like I'm trained and, to, you know, prepared as, as best as I can be given everything else that's going on in my life at that time. Um, and then outside of that, I like to try to not be super competitive and just, you know, go out and have fun and get back to the reasons why I started running on the trails and getting out in the mountains in the first place. When you're thinking about which races or what FKT attempts or whatever that you're doing, and you've just said, depending on the attempt or on the race, that it makes sense that like this particular race might sort of benefit from having a particular style of training. How much do you go about tailoring training to the particular objective? Is it like, yeah, I, I don't and sort of do assume that coming in, having done a lot of stuff, but coming in well-rested, that's my MO or do you end up doing that tailoring? Yeah, uh, I definitely try to do the tailoring, although I get swayed by good weather and good snow. Sometimes maybe That's is a, a better uh, answer. We like that answer around here. So. Yeah. But I think like 
you know, Western States is one of those races that stands out to me because it is different from a lot of the style of other long mountain based hundreds I've done. And certainly like some of the more European style races or even European races I've done have a lot more vert benefit. I think a lot, like I can more easily slip in, you know, skiing or mountaineering as part of my training buildup, because overall it's a lot of time on feet. It's a lot of kind of just moving perpetually exhausted, um, and a lot of vertical gain. And I think that at least I can convince myself is a more acceptable, uh, training yeah. <laughs> idea than just going out for like a fast 10 mile run on the roads or something. I think of ultra running as all the pain and suffering of mountaineering without the constant threat of death, <laughs> which I think is, and also people hand you snacks, which doesn't often happen, uh, on, on mountains. So you have to bring your own stuff and, Anyway, I don't know. That's something for you to, to think about. Sometimes. I think that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I read some, maybe a couple of different interviews or people asked you something about, you know, um, do you bring your science brain or your math brain? Because you were a math, math major in college and undergrad. Do you bring that to ultra running? And you kind of said, no, this is where I shut my brain off and just, and just sort of flow. Are you not doing any math at all? You're not ever, well, when I am running, doing long runs, I'm like, okay, I got 8.5 miles left. And if I go this fast, that means I'm going to be out here for X number of minutes. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Do you, do you not do that math either? You're just totally in the. I, you know, I, I actually like my mind starts to go there but I just find it in general, like I know I, I like math, but I, I hate like figuring out paces and anything on like a clock time scale. It always just gets me confused. And so when I'm like trying to think through that stuff running, you know, I will I will try to think that a little bit. But yeah, not, I don't know. Not so much. I think the bi- the biggest thing probably that I take from like my science brain into races and adventures is I like really love planning and I think I can get super dialed on the organizational stuff which I think kind of comes it's similar to how I would like plan out an experiment or super complicated long-term project at at work and so I (laughs) like to you know whenever I have crew or pacers I'm pretty dialed on here are the things that I'm going to need. This is, it's all packaged in a way that you don't even need to think about it. I don't need to think about it. You just hand me the stuff and I go. Um, and so I like, I like doing that, but that's a lot of like the forethought, not necessarily thinking through all that in the moment. I like to just get up to the day and know that like, yep, okay, I'm dialed. I have everything figured out. Now I can just do my thing. It's forethought so that you can then actually sort of turn the brain off during the actual race. Is that a fair yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I guess so. Yeah, I noticed um, watching the the video of Western States last year that you you just switch out entire vests, which I thought was I was talking to my wife about that. We were watching. I'm like, oh, this is a good strategy. There's it's all in there, you know. Um, and it's like that's so fast and completely like no one. There's almost nothing left to chance, right? Unless you have like a banana in there that went that spoiled or something like that. It it struck me as sort of genius. Did you make that up or did you pick that up from someone else or? So a lot of, I have a, a good friend who's also my massage therapist. So that's a good friend to have, um, who has a super rich history of crewing at ultras and stuff. She was kind of in it from the beginning, kind of the birth of ultra running. And at least in the Pacific Northwest, she was really in that scene. And when I was like a fledgling, just kind of starting to show up at races and figure things out, she really took me under her wing and gave me some tips. So I don't know exactly if that tip came directly from her, but at least through conversation with her, that was, that was it. And part of it was just like, sometimes you'll be at races and see people getting crude and you come in and everyone's brain is just mush. And so they've got this selection of all of this food and calories and hydration and like, you know, sunscreen and extra socks and shoes. And there's so many decisions. And I feel like when I come into an aid station, I can think of like two things and that's it. And if I have anything else on my list, it all like, I'll just leave and realize like, oh shoot. Yeah. I forgot to do that. Um, so I like to just take the guesswork out of it. And of course, like because I've done that planning in advance, then you, you just know you have that pack. And I, at least I've gotten pretty consistent with what I need over, over time. So if I do need to switch something else then I can come into that aid station knowing, okay, 
I need to switch this one usual thing out of my pack. And then it's only one thing to remember instead of 20 things. That's super smart. Yeah. So I was kind of looking around for this article that I remember from, I think, two or three years ago. And it was basically why scientists do make good ultra runners. And I can't remember who they profiled. I almost want to say it was a New York Times thing, but it was basically one of the scientists they interviewed said, yeah, you know, the failure and the hardships of doing like a hundred mile race, you know, sort of is similar to the scientific process of trying things, failing, and then trying to find the motivation to keep going. Do you find that is true for you or is it from a scientific perspective, I would say that sums up my scientific career pretty accurately. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that's spot on. Um, yeah, I think there's always problem solving. And so I think like any race or long, uh, route that you go into, you just, I think should go into it with the mindset that things are going to happen and things are going to go wrong and being able to adapt and plan and kind of like problem solve through that, I think can change the fate of, of your race or that day. And I've had to do that a number of times in different races. So I think, yeah, at least like the, the problem solving and not being thrown off when something does go wrong or when something does fail, I think is probably helpful. Yeah. So we've talked a bit about your interest in and experience with mountaineering, but are you also a climber, as in sport climber or boulder? Uh, not anymore. Uh, no, I. So when I first moved out to Seattle, about actually almost a decade ago for grad school, uh, the first I mean I started backpacking and mountaineering a little bit, but actually got pretty into rock climbing. Uh, just going to some of the climbing gyms here, and for probably about three years when I first was here, like that was one of our main sports. We were either, you know, snowboarding in the winter or climbing in the summer. And I guess I just got, I don't like standing around. I get really impatient. That's like one of my <laughs> like worst qualities maybe is I have bad patience. But so I just couldn't stand cragging. Like I, I kind of got, I would often like see yeah. the mountains and see things. I was like, I want to just like, I'll stay here for a couple hours, but I want to go run. And so that's kind of what brought about trail running is because we'd be in the mountains and I wouldn't have time to go for a road run or whatever kind of my fitness run would be in the city when I got back. So I started doing that. And I think just with um, always having, I mean, most of my start of running was when I was in grad school and I had really limited time available. So once I started focusing more on races, I kind of had to drop off some of these other side sports um, so I kept up mountaineering, but dropped climbing. And I'd love to get back into that a little bit more. But I think my motivation is more just to be comfortable on different kinds of mixed terrain. Um, I think it would help open up the door for some different routes and things. Um, and kind of blending those sports a, a little more, I think, would be super cool. But yeah, I have to get back into the climbing brain a bit. I love that answer. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that they kind of stopped cragging because of all the standing around so that's fascinating and fair but i found i was thinking again today you know we talked to a lot of runners and climbers and skiers and snowboarders etc and earlier today i was kind of back on just thinking about like as a generalization which group is sort of the most cerebral And I think that I tend, and I'm curious to hear what you guys think, I think I do tend to still think that climbers probably get the title for, like, most cerebral. But, Caitlin, you just kind of blew my mind with the thought of, like, yeah, but there's too much standing around. It's not actually perpetual problem-solving. So I think you maybe just moved your your neck and neck or moving ahead of climbers. What say you two about this? (laughs) I'm, this is not, this is not about me. So go ahead. I'm just worried. I offended a lot of people. We do that all the time. It's fine. I do think a lot of people from science backgrounds, you take up climbing, but like you they said, do. the standing around, I th- I've thought about it in terms of how much time you actually spend doing the part of the sport that you like, you know, and if you go cragging and you climb, even if you climb a dozen routes, you're only climbing for 60 to maybe well, maybe 
I don't know, not that many minutes and you include the approach, all the time you're belaying, all the time you're putting up gear, taking it out, all this stuff, the descent and stuff like that. And it ends, it ends up being this very small amount of time and, um, not to be negative about climbing, but if you go running, you just run the whole time, you know, you're not like, and then you're eating when you're not running or at the same time, which is also joyful. So, you know, like, I don't know. Anyone who's super into any sport is like enjoys the process. And for climbing, that process includes the downtime. For running, there's also a lot of miles that end up being kind of mindless and just like getting out the door because you feel like you have you have to or you have to get in the training. And so I feel like I could flip that storyline and apply the same thing to running because not every run is epic or getting out into cool terrain. There's a lot of things that you just kind of do because it's part of the process. And taking recovery time is also part of the process. So I think it just has to do with like, you know, climbers who are passionate about it probably don't think about it as as downtime or standing around. And if they do, then they're probably getting up on more multi-pitch or alpine routes where you're not really doing that, um, which obviously is like the barrier of entry. You have to be you have to be able to learn how to climb first to be able to do that stuff. And I never like was willing to really put in the work to get above past that point yet. The story about how you guys started running, I think, is really, really fun. I know you've probably told this a million times, but I think it's hilarious that you sort of like it's sort of accidentally found out you were good at it in college by taking a class. Would you yes. would you be able to tell that story again? Yeah. So I when I got to college, I started running just kind of for, I mean, probably mostly for fitness, right? You don't want to get the freshman 15. So I was kind of jogging around. I made a few friends that ran, but mostly like I had just grown up in a super small town that had nothing but farming land and cornfields. And so getting to Madison felt like a huge city and there were a lot of cool places to run. So I just used it as like a fun way to get out and kind of explore because I didn't have a car. I didn't have a bike initially. So running was the way I was kind of seeing the city. So I spent probably about two years in college running a few days a week. A friend of mine, um, told me about this PE class you could take that was two credits and it always sold or it always filled up like immediately um, but you know, if you were on it, you could get in and it was a class called marathon and distance running. And there was a prerequisite for the class, which was you had to be running at least 20 miles a week for like the last two months or something. But like most people, most college kids are like, Oh, prerequisites. Like, eh, okay. You know, how important are they really? Um, I'll be fine. So <laughs> I wasn't really doing the 20 miles a week thing, but I signed up for this class thinking that, okay, I'm, I'm like kind of new to running. It's kind of okay. I wouldn't say it's fun, but like, you know, let's just see what this is. Easy two credits. Right. And on the first day, the professor who is like one of like, he, he's like my running idol. I think he's like one of these guys that just like struts into the class with, he was wearing probably like a, a marathon Houston marathon shirt from the eighties with like his high, you know, gym shorts tucked in kind of like buzz cut, just strutting in, um, and tells us that in order to pass the class, we need to run a marathon by the end of the semester. And I was like, uh, that's not possible. Like that's not happening. Um, and he did give the caveat that you could also apply or like with special permission, you could run a 20 mile race. There was kind of a famous 20 mile race that was in, in the area. Um, so if needed, that would be an alternative. I'm like, oh, geez. OK, so, yeah, so I, I found myself in this marathon class and the furthest I'd run probably up until that point had been probably six miles. Maybe I got lost somewhere and ran eight miles or something. But, you know, I never thought that I would be running a marathon. That was never something I was really interested in. But through the class, you know, you you meet a network of people, training partners. We learn like some fundamentals of training, how to like fuel while you're running, how to choose a marathon, like all the kind of basic running stuff. And um, yeah, started training, training for a marathon in that class. Um, But I was also really into snowboarding and I was in this group that would go out to on spring break trips every year out west to go snowboarding. And so I, I actually got injured that year. So I had to essentially fail the class or taken incomplete that first year. <laughs> I tried training for a marathon on my own the following November. It got sick. It was unrelated to running, um, but that didn't work. Then I was abroad the following 
semester. And so basically it took me like three attempts to actually re-enroll in the class, run a marathon and get a passing grade. So I think like if it weren't, that was like maybe a lesson in failure and just like relentless forward progress. But yeah, I did eventually run a marathon um, and I, you know, qualified for Boston on in that run. And that was never like, oh, I could be an elite or I could I could be a professional runner. But it was like, oh, OK, like I, I finally got it done. And actually, I did it in a pretty respectable pace. Like, that's that's cool. Yeah, pretty respectable people. Most people I think that's most people's experience with their first marathon is they qualify for Boston. <laughs> right. They're like, Bob, how'd you do? Oh, it's good. I, it went pretty well. I qualified for Boston. <laughs> no, you know, I didn't. So this always makes me think of like, I don't play the violin. I've never tried. What if I picked up a violin and was like amazing at it, right? Like how often, how, how often in life, how many people are walking around? There's billions and billions of us. How many people are walking around that would be stars in their field if only they, you know, picked it up? It's a good question, right? My gut says you shouldn't pick up a violin. Maybe Caitlin should, though. <laughs> she that's, probably that's should. Me. No me question. Guessing. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. If one of us was going to be like a violin master and we were going to start today, yeah, I'm definitely betting on not me. <laughs> so I have I have a couple follow-up questions to that, Caitlin. Are you, have you been in touch with that um, instructor since you became a very successful ultra runner like does he have any idea that you uh so i have a a a couple years ago i had a friend who i think was in a master's program and ended up meeting him and told him uh, you know kind of about me but at that point like i was kind of just i guess really kind of entering the scene so i no i i really need to like send him a, a message. I think if it weren't for COVID times, I'd want to like come back and, and meet him in, in person. I think I should try to find a time to do that. I think that would be pretty fun. You could, I, I'm just suggesting this. You could go back and run like the ice age 50 in, in Wisconsin. Like that could, that's a, that's, and then, and then you'd be there and you could just visit him afterwards or beforehand. Yeah. So. I can tell you my parents would be very excited if I actually ran a race in Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> They've been asking me to do that. I mean, I did it a couple of years ago. It's fun. Oh, Super awesome. fun. Yeah. Surprisingly, you know, tough with rolling ups and downs yeah. and stuff. So yeah, it's beautiful. I don't know. You know, you're from Wisconsin. Caitlin, what, what town did you grow up in? Uh, it's a small town called Campbellsport. 3,000 people that live there. Um, and it's actually right. So there's, uh, Brandon just mentioned the Ice Age Trail. So the Ice Age Trail wraps all around Wisconsin. I know you talked to Corey on a recent podcast, so people probably have some background on it from there. But there's a section of it that goes kind of in central, the central part of the state, but a little bit closer to the lake, kind of from Kewaskum, Dundee, and north up into Greenboro. So my parents actually live about 15 minutes away from where the trail is there. And it's crazy because like when I was a kid, I mean, I was, we were always outside and camping and, and doing, you know, just stuff in in the outdoors. But, you know, like I said, I didn't run at all then. I didn't even know really the ice age trail was there other than a field trip I did in, in like fourth grade where we learned about the glaciers and walked on the ice age trail. But like, I've never gone there. So now going back, whenever I see my parents, it's fun to get out on the trail there and just know that there's this like historic, you know, state trail right, right there. And it's fun to go, but it's definitely harder. Like the train is, is tough. All those little rolling Hills are just relentless and it doesn't seem like it should be that, that hard, but it really, it really is. Did you, and so Corey Waltering is your teammate on the North face. Did hearing about what he did in any part of that make you go, I wonder if I should do the, the whole thing or try to run it and do see if I can set the FKT or were you just like, those fucking mosquitoes in the yeah, way. The and ticks. Those ticks. And the ticks. Yeah. I was probably more interested in it before I heard about all of his bugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was, when I went back, uh, I was, I spent last Christmas back at my parents' place and we had a pretty mild winter early on in December. And so I was able to get out and do some running there. And that's when I was like, Oh, it would be really cool to come back and do this whole trail, like a really good way to see my, my home state in a different way and kind of connect with people there and also maybe bring a little bit of, um, 
I don't know, fanfare to the trail and, and just Midwest running. So I was super excited when I saw that Corey was going out and, and going for the FKT, but then a little bit horrified when I saw the photos of his like duct tape ankles with the ticks and all the mosquitoes. Like that does not sound fun. There's a lot of stuff you're willing to go through, but like 40 ticks on your mm-hmm. body. Like, I'm, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm good too. Yeah. yeah. You've talked a little bit about imposter syndrome in, I don't know if this is earlier in your career, which is still quite young, I would say, I guess probably say professionally, or I guess you've been succeeding since like 2016. Was that the first race you won? And so I guess I'm, I'm wondering if that's subsiding at all, or if you still deal with it, or if you're, you know, these big things you're, you're knocking off winning, winning races here and setting course records and FKTs. Are you sort of, is it, waning at all are you going oh okay i may this might be kind of my thing or do you still have that same sort of imposter syndrome i mean i i definitely love running and i'm super uh confident in my accomplishments and and so i think like that's that's changed a little bit but i i think the thing with imposter syndrome is that it's all relative and i would say like a lot of people in a lot of different fields, whether it's being an athlete, being a scientist, being a professional in anything, like it's almost like the more you learn, the more you learn that you don't know, right? Like everyone kind of has that level of experience. And I think I, you know, learned that kind of front and center in grad school that, okay, actually a lot of people don't know as much as they make it seem like they know sometimes. And a lot of it is just like owning it and just going into the room and doing your thing. And I think the same thing is true with showing up at races and stuff too. So, um, yeah, I I think like with running in particular, I, I had some of those feelings pretty strongly when I was first like getting into Western States that very first year, because I felt like I was a nobody from up in Seattle area. I was in the middle of grad school. Most people, even that I was, you know, in contact with on a daily basis, didn't even really know that I was doing this running thing. And now I suddenly got into like the most competitive ultra in in the U S and I was standing on the starting line with women who are my idols and people. I'm like, what do I, what am I doing here? Like what, you know? And, and I think like, whether, whether it's at that elite level or you're just trying to go after some goal that you set arbitrarily for yourself in a race like it's really easy to let that self-doubt creep in you are like what you know why did I think I could run this pace did I actually do the right training how do I know it's it's all relative and I think like learning how to manage that and just be confident um, but also you know confident but humble and realistic with your expectations I think is is important too but yeah I, as a scientist <laughs> as a as an athlete I think like that's always a thing to navigate and to some extent. Wow, that was a very lovely answer about lining up at Western States, standing there with some of your idols. I just apologize to everyone because I still kind of want to know, like, how in the world you got into snowboarding back in Wisconsin? Yeah, so, I mean, the really, like, the terrain in Wisconsin just lends itself to, to skiing and snowboarding, right? Like... <laughs> I'm kidding. There's nothing. There's uh, I I was so near the Ice Age Trail, which I mentioned before at Kewaskum. There's a tiny little ski hill that has probably like 200 feet of vertical drop, um, called Sunburst, and that was Sunburst area. Yeah, that's about 15 minutes away from where I grew up, and I on a whim, I think actually my uncle one year got my siblings and I a ski lesson, a snowboarding lesson for Christmas. And I was probably 15 when that happened. So I, you know, we went snowboarding once and I loved it. I mean, there's not really a ton to do in a small town. And so having a ski hill close by is awesome. And uh, I ended up getting a a job there. I worked at the tubing hill first and then I learned how to snowboard and then I got a job as a snowboarding instructor. Like, and, uh, you know, as you can imagine, there's not a ton of like great Alpine terrain there, but they had a really good terrain park. So my friend and I just shredded it up. We were total park rats. Awesome. (laughs) And, uh, then I got really into this the ski and snowboarding club at UW Madison, which is 
way bigger and way cooler than you would think, given that it's in Wisconsin. But it's one of the largest, or the the Hoofers Outdoor Club is one of the largest student organizations at UW-Madison. And Hoofers Ski and Snowboard was like a huge, huge club there. And so we brought like... Yeah, we, we organized trips to go out west. We went to uh, Jackson Hole every spring break. We went to Grand Targhee and went skiing at Big Sky. Like, all these trips on, like, an affordable budget, which basically just meant, like, we rented these massive buses and then shipped, like, 70 college kids out for spring break out to these places. So, yeah, I was I, – I love snowboarding. Um, I was at the ski hill basically, like, every single night in, col- in high school. Wow. Did you pick it up quickly? Yeah, yeah, I did. I think I, I mean, I, I stumbled through a little bit of just learning things, but then from learning how to carve to getting in the park and just kind of like wrecking your body, my my friend and I uh, both kind of just dove into that and had a lot of fun and were a little bit fearless. I mean, I think like if I, it helps being like 16 because yeah. you don't really have a lot of um, fear. So that was, that was good. But I had, I would say actually I've had people often have asked me about like getting injuries with, as a runner and I have had very few running injuries and a lot of snowboarding injuries. <laughs> so that's, That seems about right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like I had borderline concussions learning how to snowboard, you know. I'm sure I did I didn't too. Pick it up yeah. <laughs> and so, so these days, if you're getting out on snow, are you like on a split board or have you shifted over to the dark side? This is a very sensitive topic for me. Ah, uh, yes. Good. <laughs> we're here. We're here to help. Why? Because why? Oh, because snowboarding is awesome. And I just feel like there as, especially as I was like getting older and seeing less snowboarders on the hill especially females i feel like i just like want to there's so some part of me that just like wants to like stay on a split board and shred the gnar and go you know just like do that um so i i started i've been split boarding and snowboarding out in seattle but then two years ago i got a ski setup that i was gonna try just, I mean, they're like super skinny little, I call skinny little shit sticks, honestly, because you can't turn <laughs> yes. on them. They're like basically slippers as boots um, that I was going to just use inbounds for touring, like uphill, because I'm like, maybe, you know, I still want to, I still want to split board, but like, you know, it gets dark and wet and dreary here in the Northwest in the winter. And I'm like, maybe if I can swap some of my runs for doing ski laps, like that might be a fun alternative, like fitness routine. So I did that, but then within like a few days of being on the skis, I was up trying to ski St. Helens. I skied Baker. Like I did all these like volcanoes with very questionable uh, ski ability. But I've I've kind of like this year I kind of dove into the skiing a little bit and was just like I want to at least see if I can be proficient enough on terrain to get down things. And I think I've gotten there. So I it's sensitive because I. I did a lot more skiing this last season than I did snowboarding, but uh-huh. I'm a little sad to admit that out loud. All right, all right. It's, it, it's a safe a, space. It's just a story you're telling yourself. Don't, don't, don't sweat it so much. Does your Does your husband split board or ski? Uh, he's He's the reason why I switched over. He's been a hardcore snowboarder, but he grew up skiing, and so as we started to get more into backcountry skiing and stuff here, he got a backcountry ski setup. After a few uh, years of splitboarding, in sickness and in health, yeah, snowboarding, or ski, yeah, <laughs> exactly. that's, that's how they get you. It's, yeah, it's sad. You promised, yeah. Uh. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you for for that interlude. Another thing I would be curious to hear from you about is you are a working scientist. You are a professional runner, and do you? Ever or how often do you think, man, it would be cool to only have to do one of these things as opposed to being like, boy, I am psyched that I get to do both of these things. Because I think if it were me, I would sometimes be tempted to be like, my life would be a lot simpler if I just cut this one half out. Thoughts? Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I've got a lot of thoughts about this. Some of them are that I think it's important to keep a balance and have an outlet that's not just running or not just science. Like I think having parts of my professional career that split into these different categories are really good because I can't always be training full time. I can't right like in between races and stuff like there's always that downtime. So it's really awesome to be able to have this kind of like intellectual academic science work that I'm doing that takes over and kind of gets the priority then. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've been running and in science for, I mean, as long as I've been, as long as I've been a scientist, I've been a runner. And so it's always kind of been hand in hand. And I think especially as I've started to travel more for international races, get to some more high profile, higher competitive races, finding that balance definitely gets a lot harder. And so I think it's like in those moments where I'm like, I really need this full week to just not worry about about the rest of my work or vice versa. But it's obviously really challenging to plan priorities and deadlines always around those things um, because it usually doesn't work out that way. So, yeah, I mean, I, I actually like was thinking that before the pandemic came, um, this was going to maybe be a year for me to play around with that a little bit more. I wanted to uh, take a little bit of time off of work and explore some more opportunities and just like kind of give myself a little bit of a reset. Um, But as COVID came and the world is turned upside down, there aren't races, I'm not traveling. um, So I've been in, you know, in the end, really happy that I'm, I'm still working as a scientist and really like feel super fortunate that I have a job that is flexible and that I can work remotely through the pandemic right now on. Um, but I think, yeah, at some point in my life, I feel like being able to turn the dial back and just explore full. I've done a lot of full-time science. I'd love to, to give myself that opportunity for running, maybe just to give myself a break. (laughs) Yeah. Well, hurry up and just figure out all the cell stuff and then just you can drop the mic, walk away. So I really kind of think you just need to try harder on the science part right now <laughs> and then you'll be freed up. Maybe it doesn't quite work. Like I'm not a scientist, so I don't know if that's how it works. It's just a suggestion. I think you decide, you described earlier that like science is like this iterative failing process. <laughs> so like it's really hard to get a positive mic drop moment because uh, that never okay. really exists. <laughs> but yes, that would be that would be kind of the ideal way to do it. But, really, is Jonathan's understanding of science higher than most Americans or not? Yeah. <laughs> don't answer that. Go ahead. Sorry, uh, Caitlin. I'm. I don't. I don't know if I. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this question, but do you, um, I don't know if you meet a lot of PhDs at races, but I also am wondering if you, people who know you as an ultra runner have a very hard time understanding what you do for a living. If the vice versa is true, if you're the person at the office who they're like, Oh, this is Caitlin. She runs a hundred miles at all at once. And people are like, Whoa, what? That's crazy. So you have these two opposing presences in your life where it's like sort of bizarre and both, unless you meet a lot of PhDs in races and you just spend the entire race calling each other doctor at the aid stations (laughs) and like, no, no, you go ahead, doctor. No, you go ahead. (laughs) That's Um, never happened, but I should do that. That would be fun. Um, I do. I mean, I think like you mentioned earlier, there's quite a few people that I know with a science background or advanced degree that get into ultra running. Um, and so I have a few friends that fall into that category. Um, one of my North Face teammates, Patty O'Leary, is also a PhD and is a uh, research scientist, um, postdoc actually right now. But yeah, so that happens a lot. And I think I also like, I don't know, my coworkers are just awesome and super supportive of my running. And I think like they've I started working there about four, three and a half years ago, and it was right at the same time really where a lot of my ultra running success was really exploding. And so I kind of like started as this like new scientist in the group, 
who was also going to some races and like a few people kind of realized what the races were that I was going to. And I think like brought that energy and enthusiasm to the rest of the group. So I've like come home from races before and had my desk decorated out with streamers and congrats. And that's been really awesome. And actually the uh, director of the Institute that I work at, his nephew is an ultra runner on the East coast. And so his nephew will see articles about me and send them to my boss's boss, essentially, who then gets them back to me. It was like, Whoa, we saw you in the news. Like, that's cool. So there's been this like fun little like overlap in, in interest in circles. And I think it helps too that a lot of the, a lot of my coworkers at the research Institute also have other hobbies or interests or things like it's a lot of really talented people so whether it's like some music endeavor or someone's in a band or someone is super into traveling or um climbing or you know other other sports i think there's a lot of people that understand that that extra push towards some something outside of science Mm -hmm. yeah especially in seattle area it's there's or there's a lot more parallel interest to ultra running where people have heard of it compared to probably other areas of the country. I I assume. Uh, So your, your husband runs ultras as well. So he's, he's done, I am sorry. I didn't, I didn't look him up on ultra sign up. So he, does he crew for you at most of your races and do you crew for him often? Yes. uh, I often return the favor and he crews for me unless we're running the same race, which has happened a number of times. Um, So yeah, I know he's, he's just as into it (laughs) as I am. And I, I have crewed him before and I've had some uh, pretty special moments crewing and pacing. That's always fun (laughs) to do with someone you're in a relationship with, because I think it like (laughs) just really tests the limits of, (laughs) would, would you be comfortable sharing one of those moments or, uh, his first hundred mile race, which was I'm tough in Idaho. Uh, that's a gnarly, brutal course. And I was supposed to pace him, I think for like 25 miles. And I ended up, um, jumping in early to pace because he had been having a pretty rough day ended up pacing him for 40 miles. And I think it took us 17 hours overnight. So it was like, what was supposed to be, you know, maybe a 10 hour, like eight to 10 hour pacing situation turned into like a 17 hour, like walk through hell and like the, the depths of the Idahoan wilderness where it's like freezing cold. There's like sounds everywhere. Um, so yeah, no, I, we often joke that like my, I've run hundred mile races faster than what oh, I paced no. him for. <laughs> oh, oh man. <laughs> But I feel, yeah, I feel he, that. he, he finished, he rallied. It was, it was just kind of a, uh, I mean, yeah, there was just a ton of things. He was injured. He probably was in over his head at, at, the, on that race on that day. But, um, he's, he's come back. He'd probably be embarrassed that I'm actually saying all this right now. Cause he probably is like, dude, I've done way better than that since then. Well, yeah, but that's the, that's maybe the most true moment from early on. So what was, what was the dynamic like between the two of you? Was, was there like a rock bottom or, um, I or mean, were you like just relentlessly well, positive Brendan. the whole time? No, it, no, it, I'm, it, I'm just thinking of my wife doing the exact same thing and going, I'm like, I can't believe you just, A, didn't divorce me, but also didn't just abandon me. Like, yeah. I would have been like, God, fuck this guy. I'm out of here. There's you know? a lot of hours <laughs> for things to cycle. <laughs> I would say it started off pretty positive and I was just trying to like play the problem solver pacer like okay let's try this let's jog for a little while okay let's walk um but by the end of it i mean like i was exhausted i didn't bring enough food i had been cold he didn't have enough food so he was like hallucinating he was seeing like george foreman grills on the side of the trail so there was just like <laughs> i don't know it was we we thought we actually thought like he he just made the decision part way out there that he was going to drop we didn't think he would make the cutoff and then we end up like tricking him essentially into eating a pile full of a pile of pancakes at the next aid station taping up his ankle and he just rallied and we're like just go like you have to go and we'll wait for you here for an hour you can turn around but otherwise like just go and so he ended up doing it and he finished he turned it around so that was at like mile 90 and he just took off by himself uh we had it well we know he had another pacer thankfully but i was out i'm like i can't do this anymore (laughs) 
you know, um, Yuri Robic, the, the cyclist who won like a bunch of trans race across America. Uh, he was from somewhere in Eastern Europe. I can't remember where, but his crew would like, they would videotape him having these moments where he would hallucinate being chased by soldiers on his bike. Like he'd be so out there and they'd, they would go with the hallucination. They would be like, yeah, you better hurry. They're catching you. And he's just, and he, and he would grind. That's, that's apparently how he, you know, succeeded. That's terrifying. <laughs> when you said we, we tricked him, that made me think of your aerobic, like, oh my God, I don't know. Oh no. But a pile of, a pile of pancakes is a little different than that's better. Um, yeah. yeah. So chasing you. I can, since you just mentioned this, I have to interject with a little side note, a uh, race across America. So because we already talked about how I started snowboarding in Wisconsin and I got a job, I think it was like the end of high school. And then I went back a few summers after college at a bike and ski shop in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin called Attitude Sports. And the owner of that shop, Dave Hazy, is like a, I think he's done race across America like five times. He's been the first American. He might've won it one year. I'd like, I don't exactly know, but I think like, that was before I even knew of any endurance sports or anything. Like I, my boss was this guy who was doing the race across America on a bike every summer. And so he's one I've talked to Ben because I didn't run at all back then. And now he's like seen me kind of like expand and do all this stuff, which is like pretty awesome and cool that I, I, I sometimes think about like, Oh, did that like, would that have swayed me at all into like getting into this endurance world? But I, I don't know if it, if it did necessarily, cause there's so many years after, but it's just kind of fun to think about how, like I had that, like into the endurance, crazy sports world way back then. Is he psyched? Is he just like one of us? One <laughs> Probably, of us? Yeah. Like, okay. that's, that's amazing. <laughs> God. Yeah. What a connection. That's crazy. That's really cool. You did. Um, and you had no context to what he was doing at all no. at the time you were just like oh yeah he eats a lot and he's skinny and yeah yep bikes are like I don't know well and I I remember seeing like photos at, I mean it was super impressive but like he'd come back and just be wrecked I mean it, sometimes you'll see like people after really long routes I mean actually Alex and I look like this after the infinity loop where like your faces are just kind of a little bit swollen and you don't really look like yourself but like I'm like would see photos like that. Like, God, these people are crazy. Like, what do you do? What are they doing? <laughs> like, here I am. <laughs> here you are. And then, yeah. And then joining them. Yes. Exactly. I yeah. them. Do you ever see yourself teaching? I thought about it actually when I went to grad school, I, that was my goal just to get a professorship and stay at a university and do research and teach. Um, and then since then I've thought about whether or not I'd want to go and teach a younger grade or high school or something. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's not off the table, but I think, uh, not something I'm like actively pursuing right now. Do you have anything else planned for the year or what does it look like for you? You've had an amazing year so far, um, running wise or outdoors wise, not, not, uh, not work wise. My next ultra marathon, which is a paper I'm working on for work. Um, no, uh, I don't have any like massive plans for anything. I've got a teammate of mine, Hillary Allen, who's going to be in the area coming up pretty soon. So we're going to get out. I'm just really excited to show her a bunch of the Northwest. So we're going to go kind of bum around and do some things. But um, yeah, I, it, I think the nice thing about not having a lot of races this year is you just allow yourself that downtime and recovery. And so I've been thoroughly enjoying that with like a lot of couch time and biking and kind of just chill hikes and stuff since Wonderland about a month ago. So I have no plans of doing anything too crazy yet. Caitlin, what a pleasure. This was super fun. And um, I can't believe all the things that you have already accomplished in your life and uh, including, you know, switching from split boarding to, you know, being a skier, but that's okay. You know, you're welcome in our little ski world. We won't judge you though. Many snowboarders listening to this will, <laughs> you know, and understandably, but um, you have to come back and talk to us again sometime. Cause I want the update on like, did Caitlin just totally move us forward in the entire cellular world? You know, we're going to need some updates. So if, if this is okay, you know, we'd like to have you back sometime. This is awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. 
but we may make fun of you the next time about the like transition to skiing. So just we just want full disclosure. No fucking so, way. I am totally on board. Like I'm not. <laughs> also, I would not presume that I would not presume that any snowboarders listen to this podcast about running. Like, come on, dude. Uh, well, you never know. You never know. <laughs> you gotta um, expand your audience. Come on. Then. <laughs> Bill, this says former snowboarder Caitlin talking to us about. <laughs> Run, I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll have some ground to cover that for another round. So uh, we hope you come back. I'll consider it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Caitlin for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Crested Butte, Colorado, we hope that you are doing well. And until next time, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.